Well, great to be with you. My name is Brent. I uh, left behind my one wife and three kids this morning. We have three little girls, and so just mornings are terrible. And, um, and my wife's also eight months pregnant, so that is true. Um, but anyway, I'm glad to be with you all. Let me pray for us, then we're going to open the Word this morning. Father, we do ask that you would come and, and visit us this morning uh, through your Word, uh, that you would use um, the broken vessel that's speaking it um, to say true things. I pray that you would open our hearts, uh, you would open our minds to consider what is being said, that you would open our, um, our passions, that you would stir us, that you would affect us uh, by the good news of what you have done in and through your Son. I pray that your Spirit would, um, would move us to action, and that it wouldn't just be an intellectual curiosity or an intellectual exercise, but um, that our affections would be stirred and our bodies would be uh, moved. Um, so help us toward that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The passage is John three sixteen through 21. Um, no doubt a familiar passage to many of you, maybe not all, but that's okay. Uh, before we open it and read it, and I would like, if you have a phone Bible or something to kind of have that open, I'm going to reference it at different points this morning, um, but go ahead and go there. Before we do that, though, let me kind of draw us in by asking you this question. Uh, can you remember a time or think of a time when you thought you were finished with something, but then you realized, oh, I'm, I'm not finished at all? I, I thought about a few things. Maybe it's true for you. Uh, maybe you've been out on a run, if you're, if you're a runner in a place that's not your normal track, and you kind of get and you make that last turn, and you think you're on the home stretch, but then you realize... This, in fact, is not the home stretch. I've got another block, or I've got another mile to go. Or maybe if you're a cook, uh, which many of you probably are or have cooked, you've made the beautiful meal, only to then put it in your mouth and realize you left out salt or something, some kind of key ingredient, and it just doesn't taste right. Uh, maybe you're a hiker, and you've been climbing, particularly in the mountains, and you see the summit, right? You see the goal right there ahead of you, and so you kind of gird up for that last ascent, and you get there and realize it was a false summit, and you have yet another hill to climb. Uh, a few, not a few years ago at all, about 20 years ago, because I'm 36, uh, I was in high school, and I went on vacation with my family to Colorado, as we often did in the summer, to get out of uh, the inferno that is Duncan. And uh, a lot of times when we would go on vacation, I would look for a golf course to go play golf at, uh, just to get away and enjoy wherever we were. And that was true this summer in La Vida, Colorado, a place called Grandote Peaks. And what is true, or what I found out to be true about golf courses in the mountains that was different from golf courses in Duncan, is that you can't always see every other hole from each hole, right? It's like in Duncan, you go stand right there and you see the whole course because there's hardly any trees and there's not that many hills. But at this golf course, uh, I got to the end of the 13th green, and I headed off, I was in a golf cart, headed off to the 14th green, or the 14th tee box. I played the 14th hole and realized that it wasn't the 14th hole at all. It was, in fact, the 18th hole. And I guess what happened is I missed the cart path. I, I made the wrong turn, and I skipped three holes, 14, 15, 16, actually in 17, four holes. And so I was finished. Like, literally, the clubhouse is right there. I'm finished, but I wasn't finished. 
There was more golf to be played, but I couldn't go back because there were people behind me, and you just can't do that. So I was done. This passage we're about to read, as I mentioned, contains John 3.16, kind of the Magna Carta of the Christian life. Theologians have called it the gospel in a nutshell. Uh, One pastor out in California named Rankin Wilburn, he says that this passage creates the first photobomb. It's a passage that everybody can get behind. It's not that funny. It was his joke, it was not mine. It's a terrible joke. But like, it is, we all kind of get behind that whether or not we know exactly what it all means. Like, yes, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But here's the question that I want us to think about. For those of us who, who really agree with this passage, for those of us who get it right um, and who, who know that, yes, uh, God does love the world, that Jesus is more than just a teacher, He's the Savior, then why does so often the Christian life feel like I felt like on the, the 18th, 14th green that day? Why does it so often feel like there's got to be more? Surely this isn't it. And friends, what I want to suggest this morning is that Jesus is more than a teacher, yes. Jesus is more than a Savior, though He is that. In this passage, I want us to see that Jesus is a lover. That He is a lover, and and that is hard for us to believe because it's weird to kind of think about. So often we think of, of Jesus as the dutiful Son who does what the Father commands Him to do, go and save the world, live a perfect life, die on the cross, redeem the world. Those things are true. But I want, what I want to suggest is that um, those transactions of the Gospel are easier for us to believe than the fact that He is a lover. But, the fact that He is a lover is in fact what actually stirs our affections and changes our hearts for daily living. This is what has the power to answer that question, is there more? The answer is yes, because Jesus loves us. So please stand if you're able. Let me read this passage, John 3, 16-21. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. So before I jump in and just kind of launch into this uh, treatise on looking at Jesus' love, let me connect the dot. Because if you look at that passage, you may look and rightly say, it actually doesn't say that Jesus loves anything. It says, for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, and then Jesus did what he did. But let me me draw uh, draw a connection for you that John, the writer of this, certainly had in his mind as he wrote it. In the first two chapters of John's Gospel, he has been building this case that Jesus is God. 
John chapter 1, he starts out by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on later in chapter 1 and says that this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John has already in his mind built the case that Jesus is God. He's the eternal God forever uh, and ever having existed And so when John comes to this third chapter, which would have just been part of the letter that he was writing, he's saying that God so loved the world, he also means that Jesus loved the world too. That Jesus wasn't just the dutiful son, Jesus himself is the one who loves the world. And so when he enters the world to save it and redeem it, he is entering it as one who loves it. He's entering it as one who loves it. So what about his love? What about it? Three things. It's powerful, it's purposeful, and it creates a people. It's powerful, purposeful, and it creates a people. Let's look at that first one. His love is powerful. In verses 17 and 18, if you'll glance back at them on your phone, your Bible, or whatever it is you're using, Jesus makes some observations about this world that he loves. I'm going to reread it. It says, For God did not send his Son... Sorry, John is making some observations about this world Jesus loves. He said, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because the world, because He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Okay, that's a, that's a strange statement. It doesn't really, it's not nice, it's not lovey and, and fluffy. But John's using it intentionally. And what he's saying is this, that The world that Jesus loved and entered into is dark. It's filled with darkness. Darkness is the given of this place. Uh, If you have kids or if you've ever worked with kids and you've given them the opportunity to paint, particularly paint with watercolors, this will be familiar. So you sit down with kids and you give them that little color palette, that little eight color palette uh, strip of watercolors, and you give them a cup of water and a paintbrush and some poor piece of paper that's about to be destroyed. And so they take the water, they put it on the palette, it makes colors, they put it on the paper, back to the cup. They do this thing for a few minutes. But here's what's true, is that all of that activity is moving toward darkness. (laughs) The page is going to end up in like a messy, wet piece of dark nothing. The cup is going from clear water to dark and then all of the individual paints, which were so pretty, are now the all, they're all the same shade of brown. It's just moving that direction. That's what's true. John's saying that's true of the world. That it was created with original beauty and intent. It had all these wonderful colors and dimensions and aspects of life to it. But sin has moved in and polluted it. It has gone to darkness. It's all varying shades of brown and black. And Jesus has come to pull it back into its restored beauty. He's come to bring the color and to bring the life back into it. And so when he looks and and says in in 17 and 18 um, that that this is the case of the world, it is dark, but there is a love that's entering in to change it. So what does that love look like? How would we know it if we would see it? Well, we would fast forward in John's Gospel to John chapter 13. It's on display throughout, but very clearly in John 13. In this passage, Jesus is with his disciples 
in what's called the upper room, and he's giving them kind of his last farewell instructions before he is delivered to be crucified and for the resurrection. He's talking to his disciples, and he says this. Uh, John says this about him. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the uttermost. And then he turns and he takes the towel and the wash basin and he washes his disciples' feet. That the personification of Jesus' love for this world is he comes and he does the weakest thing. That Jesus' powerful love is embodied in the weakest act imaginable. He is taking the place of a servant. I know you've probably heard this talked about a hundred times. We have to talk about it again. No one would have wanted to do this. It was nasty, disgusting. And Jesus goes right down and he does it. Powerful love issues forth in service. And if we think that Jesus washes his disciples' feet reluctantly uh, because it's part of the deal that he made with God, then we will never understand the cross. If you think that Jesus does the things that he does because he made a deal with God before the foundation of the world, it's like he drew the short straw, he's like, okay, I guess I'll go and die. Like, if that's how you think about Jesus' love and what he does, you will probably think that Jesus has to love you. But he doesn't. In 1990, there was a man by the name of Robertson McQuilkin, and McQuilkin was the, uh, the president of a liberal arts uh, school is a small Christian uh, liberal arts school in South Carolina, and it was up and coming. He had done a fantastic job of building this, uh, this base of professors, and their enrollment was up, and they were blowing and going. It was called Columbia Bible College. And um, at, a, at a moment too soon, uh, Dr. McQuilkin's wife um, became very ill with Parkinson's disease, and if you know anything about that disease, it's awful, and it, and it breaks down people's lives, and it's just terrible. He had informed the university community that he had to step down from his role as president. And in part of the letter that he wrote to them, he says this, Recently it has become apparent that Muriel is content most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time that I am away from her. It is not just that she is discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me. And she always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. This decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, uh, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with this. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years if I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, her occasional flashes of that wit that I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continuing distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. 
Jesus doesn't have to love you. In his heart of hearts, he is saying, I get to. We have to understand that. Jesus isn't just tolerating you. Dr. McQuilkin wasn't tolerating his wife. It wasn't duty that drove him to do what he did. He said, I get to because I love her. Friends, Jesus is a lover. Have you let that love go all the way in? Even to those parts which you think have deemed you unlovable. He loves you. He loves you right in that place, all the way down. It's a powerful love, but it's also a purposeful love. So if I was going to ask the room to raise your hands or to blurt out, what was the purpose? Why did Jesus do what he did? I would venture to say that, that the majority of the room would say that he came to pay for our sin. He came to die on the cross for our sin. He came to save us. And while that's true, and I'm certainly not, right, I'm not, I'm not putting aside the power of the gospel, I think that there's part of this that we miss. We default into that transactional mindset, that substitutionary atonement, which is right and true and good. We think that that is the main actor on the stage with love as the spotlight shining on it. But I think it's actually backwards. I think love is the primary main actor on the stage and that the transaction of the gospel is fleshing out the depths of that love. We see this um, in verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works, uh, excuse me, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may clearly be seen that his works have been carried out in, God, in love. In God, sorry. And it, I'm trying to say that in Jesus' love, he is seeking to reorient our love. That his love has as its purpose to reorient what we love. And these verses go on to talk about that. It's weird, though, because right, he's talking about for God so loved the world that he did this and the world was dark, and then he just goes to start talking about their evil works. It's like, man, what is the connection here? Why is John saying that our works um, are right up in this mix of what Jesus came to do? Jesus came to change those works. He came to change it. Look at verse 19. He said, people loved darkness rather than the light. So how does Jesus know that they love the darkness? Did he ask them? No, he looked at their lives. Their works were consistently evil, which told me that they loved the darkness. But the opposite is also true, for whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Y'all, our actions flow from our desires. What you and I do in our lives flows from what we love. We do the things we love. Many of us uh, probably have an official theology that says that, that I believe the Bible, I know that Jesus loves me, I trust him, and yet our fingernails would uh, show the opposite is true. Most of the time we are an anxious mess, we worry about everything. 
Um, some of us would say, yes, I believe that Jesus loves me, and I know that he's at work in my marriage, uh, and we love each other, but an evening in our bedroom would say the opposite, that we actually functionally don't like each other at all. So what I want to ask is, where is your life telling on you? Where is your life showing that, that the things that you do actually say something different than your official theology or your official statement? Let me try to help us in this. Um, last fall, I was going to see my counselor. Actually, I wasn't going anywhere. I talked to him over Skype, and, which I thought would be weird. It's not, actually. It's pretty normal. And so we were sitting there talking, and I was telling him that I feel very distant from my wife and from my kids. And so, you know, he kind of meander around for a little bit. And if you've ever been to counseling, you know, like, at some point, you're just going to get nailed. And he or she is going to say something, and it just totally throws you off. And so I'm talking about this and that, and he said, well, tell me what you do with your free time. And I started to explain how, oh, yeah, we're in the middle of this home renovation, and so I come home from on campus, and I, I do the kitchen, or I paint this wall, or I do that floor over there. And, and he says, okay, so let me get this straight. You say that you love your wife and your kids, and yet you don't give them any of your time. You say that they're wonderful and the most important thing to you, and yet you functionally go home and spend all of your time on your house. He said, Brent, your actions are betraying what you say you love. If you never spend time with them, if they're never getting the best part of any of your days, then you say that you love them, but in reality, you aren't loving them. And so I gave him $150 and said that felt great. Thank you. Jim Gaffigan understands this too. He understands that what we do flows from what we love. He calls it McDonald's, and, and he's saying that, um, you know, none of us really like the fact that we eat McDonald's. Uh, we know that, that there's nothing there good for you. It's all terrible for you, but we go in there like a moth to a flame, and we eat their hamburgers, and we devour their fries. And then he starts talking about, you know, so maybe, you know, it's not McDonald's for you. But maybe it's you telling yourself that the Starbucks Frappuccino is not really a milkshake. <laughs> He's like, that's McDonald's too, it's all the same. Or maybe that it's innocent when you read Us Weekly, and you know how many dates Jennifer Aniston's been on the past 15 years. Like, it may feel innocent, but that's McDonald's. It's like, I know I shouldn't do this, but we just keep doing it. And Jesus came to change that. He came to get in there and start reorienting our desires. His love is meant to reorient our loves. And so what do you love? What do you love? What gets your attention? What gets your passion, your zeal? What does your budget say about what you love? And then what does your credit card statement say about what you love? What gets your free time? What do you do when you have a few hours in the day or a few hours on the weekend? What do you love? What do you dream about? What do you daydream about? What, do you, what preoccupies you when, when you're not at the grindstone doing work or going to school? What do you love? What makes you angry? Where do you find yourself getting surprisingly angry, maybe out of nowhere? That thing that you didn't get 
or that you weren't able to do, that is what you love. And those things can all be good things. But Jesus has come to get into that love and say it's possible that we love good things too much. He's come to reorient that. And His love is powerful and it's purposeful and it's trying to go into there to change that. Here's what I'm going to suggest, that that this is actually maybe hard to do by yourself. That sometimes it's hard to know if I'm loving the wrong things or if I'm giving too much time over here or too much attention over here. And so I think it's actually helpful for you to ask someone who's close to you. So grab, uh, maybe for you that's a spouse, maybe for you that's a friend, maybe it's a parent. It's probably not somebody that you're dating because they're going to lie to you. Uh, it's got to be someone who doesn't have anything to gain or lose by being honest with you. And say, hey, what do I love too much? Help me think through that. What is it that I give my time and heart to that maybe isn't the best? Or that I give too much of my time and my heart to? Jesus came to change some of that. So it's hard to do alone. So that's what takes us to our third point. We become a people of his love. His love is powerful that it moves us to do the weak things, to lay down ourselves, our lives. It's purposeful. It's trying to reorient those loves. But then when we do it communally, it creates a people of his love. So return with me back to that that upper room scene with Jesus is with his disciples in John 13. So he, he, he tells them, This is um, the way that I'm going to love you. And he goes and washes their feet. And what we want to have happen, or what we think might happen, is that Jesus stands up and kind of dusts off his hands and says, okay, now that we got that out of the way, let's go on to the teaching portion of our evening uh, and to the really important stuff. But here's what he actually says. As I have done this to you, you should do it for one another. In the manner in which I love you, so should you love one another. People of grace, the theology of the cross, the theology that says that God sends his own son into the world to save the world from its own condemnation and darkness, it is only fully and finally complete when it flows out into the fruit-bearing, foot-washing mission of Jesus' people. When Jesus came to save the world, he never had in his mind that he was going to come and just die for people's sins and create a people that are called the church, and then he would go back to heaven and kind of just chill and wait for God to tell him it was all time to come back. The purpose of his loving salvation and redemption was to create a people who would be changed by that, who would go out to imitate him. And so when he comes up from washing his disciples' feet, he says, look, just as I did for you, now you go do that for one another. Go wash one another's feet. Go take care of each other's kids. Go do the nursery so that you can go to church. Go do all these things which flow from that love. He says in John 12, 24, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so when Jesus dies that seed falls to the ground and it bears much fruit, not out there somewhere, but in here. 
that you become the fruit of what Jesus did. If He's the tree, we're the fruit. And so this means that that we clean up our kids' sickness at 1.15 a.m. And we change the sheets. And we do it again at 2.43 and at 3.27 and at 4.17. You just keep loving because that's what it means to love someone. It's inconvenient. It can make you mad. It ruins your next three days. But as I've done for you, so you go do it for one another. It may mean that you let the young man or the young woman stay at your house for a night or for a week or for a month because they just don't have any other options. They just lost their job and they didn't get severance. And their family is not a good family for them to go back to. As I have loved you, so love one another. It may mean that, that you take that coworker to lunch once a week and it is painful and it is awkward and it is hard to, ha- to talk with them because all they want to do is criticize people and gossip. And you go be like Jesus and you just pursue Him. You pursue her and you love Him. You love her. As I've done for you, so you do it for one another. You ask that guy who no one else wants to live with if he'll live with you and your two buddies in the three-bedroom apartment. Because no one else is asking him. That's it. He's going to live by himself and think he's subhuman and that he'll never have any friends unless you ask him to come live with you. As I've done for you, so you go and do for one another. We become a people of his love. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to do that. Let me finish by talking about the patron saint of Oklahoma, Reed Drummond. About a month ago, uh, my wife and kids and a friend of ours we loaded up the car and we drove to Pahuska, and we were visiting the shrine known as, um, you know, the Pioneer Woman Mercantile in her restaurant there. We naively thought that we were going to have lunch there, showing up at 11:30 on Saturday. <laughs> what we didn't know is that half of Oklahoma also had that idea, and so the line—I mean, we just saw the line—and I realized quickly we're not eating here. Uh, the line was two and a half hours long. And so we just went into the mercantile and spent too much money on stupid stuff. And so, um, but here's the the thing. Why would people go stand in that line? What would possess you to go be the last person at the end of the line and wait two and a half hours? They found something they loved. They love her recipes for good reason. They love her stuff. I don't know that reason. They found her compelling, she's smiling, she's wonderful, she makes you feel good. And so they're like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go have her food, I'll go buy her overpriced stuff, I love her. In just a minute, we're going to line up at a meal too. But friends, this meal is, is infinitely better. And here's why. Uh, you may love Reed Drummond. You may think the Pioneer Woman is the best thing to ever hit Oklahoma. She might be. But she doesn't love you. She's going to make you think she does, but she doesn't. She doesn't know you. At this meal, you have someone who knows you all the way down. Everything. The most embarrassing thing. The most awful thing. The thing you did last night or last week or last month that you still haven't told anyone. He knows all of that. 
and he loves you. He doesn't just invite you and say, go be like me. He says, I've given myself for you because I love you. And I'm not just going to give you a moralistic charge to go be better and do better. I'm going to come give myself for you so that I can go to the ground, so that I can die, so that I can bear much fruit. And he does something even more. He sends his Holy Spirit to live in us, to empower us. It's like we have a built-in miracle grow in our lives to make this fruit grow. And so when we line up at this table and we take of his body, he is saying, I am here to feed you. I'm here to strengthen you. I'm here to be everything that you need for this week and this month and beyond. He doesn't have to. He gets to. Let's pray and ask God to make this love real for us. Lord, would you, would you convince us that that is true? Would you convince us that, that you have not just come to embody what love should be like and to tell us to do the same, but you have come to show us the full extent of your love. And you have come to reorient our loves. And you have come to send your spirit of love and live inside of us. And so make us a people of your love that love one another very well and very deeply, sacrificially, but that also leave here and turn our hearts and our eyes to our neighbor and to this city and to our coworkers and ask, what would it look like to love them? I pray that you would empower us for that journey. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.